Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And as always, uh, once a month, we talk through a docket of issues with Emily Jashinsky. Uh, Emily is a senior fellow with Independent Women's Forum, um, but she's also the culture editor over at The Federalist. She works for Young America's Foundation, training up a next generation of, uh, I don't even want to say conservative journalists anymore. I feel like it's more um, thoughtful people trying to find report on real facts and trying to find some solution in the morass that we find ourselves in. Um, and then, um, finally, she also has a, um, weekly segment with her friend Ryan Grimm, uh, over at, uh, Breaking Points with Crystal and Sager. What's the name of that segment again? Uh, yeah, it's the show's called Counterpoints. So it's breaking points and counterpoints. Um, and, and she and Ryan have very different disagree on a lot of things, agree on something. So it's a, it's an interesting, uh, interesting weekly show. And I, I encourage you to check it out, but, um, thanks for, for coming back for another episode of this, this high noon docket episode, Emily. Thank you for continuing to have me. And as it's, it's truly a pleasure every month, I look forward to it. Uh, yeah, this is, this is one of those fun elements of, of what we do for a living. Sometimes, uh, we literally, get paid to sit here and talk about the stuff that we would be chatting over about over uh, a glass of wine um, at, at happy <laughs> hour, I feel like. So uh, that that's well done us in terms of, of making that happen. <laughs> as a career. Right. We don't have um, wine right now, although we should, but yeah. it's uh, only 1 p.m. Yeah. So uh, sometimes we do this later and, and therefore we do a real uh, happy hour style episode here. Um, but it's a we'll bring the... The after dark mentality to the early afternoon. Yeah, well, it's going to be colder and darker every day now, which is really depressing. I I hate. Um, I I can't remember if I hate daylight savings time or I hate not daylight savings time, but I hate whichever <laughs> one we're going to be going in. Um, I hate falling back because then it, it gets dark at like four p.m. and it's really depressing. Anyway. Um, that is not what we're here to talk about. Um, the first subject that is on our docket is we both attended NatCon and Emily gave a um, great talk that I think is worth digging into with her um, at more length. But um, the, the essential and, and jump in uh, if, if you think I'm mischaracterizing this in any way, but the I feel like the essential thesis of your talk was actually a question, which is why aren't some of the most actually important miserating factors of what defines American life in 2022, why are those almost conspicuously absent from our politics? And you list a few of these things. You list um, pornography, obesity, the lack of like, um, you know, exercise outside, um, you know, getting, getting, touch, touching grass and feeling the sun on your face, um, you know, remote work, alienation. Um, you touch on, on a whole series of these, um, kind of factors and you, you wonder why uh, where are the the political responses to things that oftentimes are actually more immiserating to the average American than some of the things that we're constantly talking about um, in our politics so you know what what are those factors um, or at least some of them and, and why why do you think uh, there hasn't been as you put it in this in this talk a Ralph Nader candidate for example around the addictiveness of social media and technology 
Right. And tech in general, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I actually don't have a good explanation, maybe just because it's still so, so new and we're finally kind of catching on to the reality of, of hyper novelty and, and maybe the, that's yet to come. Um, but I think it, that's a, that's a good way to put it. it. It's, it's best expressed as a question. And I think probably the, the clearest answer is what Charles Murray offers in coming apart. Um, and if we think about the things that plague the daily existence of an average American, um, it's everything that comes with obesity. Um, it's everything that comes with a lack of exercise. Um, and, and these things sound like kind of Joe Rogan-y, uh, but through the lens of hypernovelty, what they really are is that in the last hundred or so years post-industrialization um, and then post-deindustrialization and the sort of Zoom workforce, uh, we're we're living very, very different lives than humans have evolved to, to live. And so if we aren't getting a certain amount of exercise, physical activity, because we're not foraging for our food. Thankfully, we're not foraging for our food on a daily basis. Um, and we're not making food out of our own gardens or what was locally produced and relying on highly processed uh, food that's coming from all over the world, which is wonderful to so many in so many respects, because we get to try food from all over the world and um, sort of share touchstones in that sense. Um, but these are big changes in in the average life of an American and uh, of a human, and they're having downstream consequences for mental health. Um, people are living without moms and dads, and we always have that conversation when there are tragedies like mass shootings. Um, you know, these are fatherlessness is is basically the clearest thread um, throughout uh, people who who perpetrate these sorts of things. And fatherlessness is downstream of the sexual revolution, um, and, and none of this was really a, is. is really discussed in political contexts. And I think that's especially sad on the right as we are sort of reforming, reformulating what conservative politics should be and what government can do uh, to what government and uh, responsible corporations and communities, not just government, but, you know, local governments, um, community groups, churches, um, and business leaders, what they can do. Uh, with the with the levers of government and with the levers of power that they wield in the private sector and the local sectors, um, it just it absolutely should be talked about. It doesn't get talked about to your original question, and as uh, to expand on that briefly, because elites get married at higher rates, they tend to have better health, they tend to have more time for exercise, um, they tend to have more means for exercise, they tend to have more access to childcare, good childcare, um, and so can sort of cushion the blow that comes from uh, single parenthood or whatever else it is uh, differently than the members of the working class. So I don't think they feel the pains as acutely. Um, as others do, although I think that's changing a little bit. Um, so I, I think that's the, the best answer that I have. But I also think it's a real opportunity for the right, um, as they are reformulating politics, to, to really put the lens of hypernovelty on um, and, and say so many of these issues don't need to fall on partisan divides. Um, they need to be contextualized uh, with this broadened aperture and perspective of time. Um. As as so much of the NatCon conference immediately was, there there was this backlash to what you were saying online among you know sort of libertarian leaning types or, or reporters who were coming um, to to listen and report on the speeches. Um, but it seems like so in your talk, you you really do. It's, it's funny, like, and I feel like this. I'm in this position a lot myself. You are a genuine moderate on a lot of these questions. You're just <laughs> bringing them up. Um, and pointing to the fact that they are having more impact on 
our lives than a lot of the things that we are at each other's throats about in many, in many ways. Um, but, but you, you said that quote, we didn't regulate, regulate individual social media use or pump their feeds full of propaganda. Like China does. We don't have to go full Bloomberg and confiscate big gulps. We just need to adjust our political and cultural conversation to account for these enormous changes. This is not a call for regulation, although there is room for that. Conservatives can and must lead the way. Our technologies can be helpful. People don't want to be attacked, but they are absolutely hungry for this message. And I guess my my question to you is how, I mean, that is a really difficult line to walk um, when you're talking about what are essentially vices and you quote in a different part of the speech, you quote um, some I can't remember for, to what magazine, but somebody being interviewed about some of these things, um, basically that, you know, fast food, pornography, um, like social media, quote unquote, relationships. Um, the, these things are preventing people from hitting complete rock bottom, but they're a, a facsimile of the real thing. Mm-hmm. Um and but but that facsimile, people are attached to it. I mean, th- this is how the conversation always goes, especially around um, two things. I've noticed weed and porn. Mm-hmm. Right? It's just impossible to have a conversation about how those things are harmful uh, because people immediately get defensive um, about them. And they immediately say something. They respond as though you say you just said we should throw everybody who has ever watched pornography in jail. You know what I mean? Like people (laughs) respond in a totally um, like disconnected way from, I think what you're actually saying here, which is, well, maybe some smart regulation has a role here. Capital P politics might have a role here um, in dealing with some of these problems. But how do you, how do you open that conversation in a way where, as you say, people don't feel attacked because, that certainly seems to be the response um, when you bring up any of these subjects in exactly the political context. People assume that you're going to throw them in jail for whatever vices they enjoy. Yeah, the quote you mentioned is a really sad one. I pulled it, I believe it was from Barry Weiss's Substack and, and a post that was written by Susie Weiss. And it was in a conversation with a 20-something uh, who lived outside London, I believe, who was saying, you know, basically you can subside, um, you know, whether it's you can subside on video games um, for the as a substitute for uh, kind of leadership and action and uh, you know, the the purpose that human beings get um, because you can accomplish missions and, and I'm I'm uh, adding a little bit uh, of explanatory I think context to what the person said and you can subside on pornography um, as a substitute for actual sexuality and basically there's really no reason um, to leave your house um, or to sort of live as we used to, um, or as many of us still do, but increasingly won't have to, because the synthetic version is good enough. Um, what is the point, right? If there is no purpose, and this is where in the speech, I also, also quoted Nietzsche, um, who was talking about, you know, once God is dead, um, something else is going to going to be constructed in in a substitute uh, as a replacement for the Christian moral structure. Um, and w- what we've seen is moral relativism uh, take its place. And moral relativism makes it very hard for people to find their purpose. Um, you know, social media is not a synthesis uh, or is, is not, is not a substitute um, for online or for, for in-person interaction. I think we know that. Um, but one of the, 
big things. Like that quote is really important to the question you just asked because it shows exactly why we can't attack people, but why we, we have to um, talk to them and, and talk to all of us. This affects every single one of us in one way or another. Maybe we love TikTok. Um, maybe we love Twitter. Maybe we love video games, whatever it is. Maybe we eat out all the time like me uh, and don't cook our own food. Maybe we do. Uh, you know, we, we're all affected by this. And uh, it reminds me of an ad that Marco Rubio ran this cycle against Val Demings, his Democratic opponent. Opponent And Rubio attacked her because she has a TikTok and she's using a, a campaign TikTok I think that's a completely fair attack. I don't think it's politically an effective attack because so many people use TikTok. Um, it, you kind of have to connect the dots. And, and instead of just attacking people for being part of modernity, you have, like, we have to talk to people and, and cause it's all of us. We're all in modernity in one way or another. Marco Rubio uses Twitter every day. You know, he, he is doing, you know, he's online and this is, affects all of us. So explaining to people, why this this synthetic experience is not as rich and valuable why that they why they have purpose why they have dignity and why they're sad and anxious and depressed why we all are um not living our quote unquote best lives um you know we really need to level um and that should be easy because we're all in the same dang place so like we can level but instead of sort of launching attacks it's People are really sad and they're really suffering and they're really unhealthy mentally and physically, even though we live in an age of abundance. Um, and, and so it's, you know, we're, it, this is this is not a difficult message to share. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably one of the keys in sharing it that um, or doing anything about it, talking, holding a conversation about any of these things is is to talk about it as a broader problem of modernity rather than like, and, and to acknowledge that we're all stuck in this in some way. I feel like we, we've talked about religion in this context before, or at least I have. Mm -hmm. And part of my problem um, with some of the way that the right talks about it. Um, and here I, I and I've, I've, I think I've repeatedly referenced her on this point, but Anna Kachian is, I think more correct than most of right she says she's not a trad um because it's essentially like it's a larp it's a backwards um th there's an element to modernity that of like self-awareness of a lot of this stuff that can't be undone um in my view and i think it's just going to accelerate like i, I don't think that the i think that it's a bad thing that there are probably more people like me in the world who don't um don't believe in at least any particular faith tradition um, and don't don't adhere to any particular faith tradition. I also think it's going to keep happening. I mean, mm -hmm. maybe we'll have some kind of great awakening that isn't wokeism, um, <laughs> which is is our fifth great awakening. But um, you know, but maybe not. And and these these trends are going to perpetuate. And so I, I haven't found an answer, but I feel like I'm increasingly in the position on a whole bunch of these topics that you just listed. Of essentially, we need to punch through this in some way like there, there's got to be something new essentially um constructed that that finds a way to to give people not only purpose but a reason to live real life um right. and i don't know what that thing is going to be and i you know i don't know it personally i don't know it politically um but it seems to me that there is an element of impossibility to the the whole return you know with a v kind of idea 
um, that it, it, it's very difficult for me to imagine once self-aware and once these um, these technologies, for example, are available as broadly as they are, um, once you can get a, a facsimile of the things that, you know, tickle your limbic system and uh, make your brain think that you're living, um, you're living a normal human life um, or even a good human life. Uh, it, I just, I, I don't know. I don't mean to sound depressing, but like, mm-hmm. it's, it's difficult to, something clearly has to happen or we will die out as a species. I just, I really believe this. Like we will not do any of the things that are actually necessary to perpetuate the species. Um, so something has to happen, but I, it seems futile to me to try to like will yourself into, uh, into essentially taking on what, what is probably going to be awkward and difficult in a thousand different ways. Um, the, the harder path, and there's always going to be people who, who take the, the harder path, but you know, if there's one thing we know about human beings, the path of least resistance is really difficult to avoid on a population level. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I actually share your pessimism for the most part, except I do think it's uh, partially, I think, you, and you would probably agree with this, we don't totally know the answer. We don't totally know where this goes, but it is very clear that we're, we're numbing ourselves out of a response. Um, you know, it's exactly what the quote from Susie Weiss's report indicates that like, it's fine to be uh, on social media porn and video games um, because you it's fine, right? Like you're not dying. Um, you're surviving. And that's, you know, we have like advanced medical technologies now that can treat all of the different illnesses that are downstream of sedentary lifestyles, of the bad foods we eat, and et cetera, et cetera. So it's fine. We're just going to keep treating the pain and trying to mitigate the pain instead of addressing the root cause. So, I, I mean, I definitely share the pessimism, although on the other hand, I do think the solution or the the conversation about the solution is fairly easy um, because we do increasingly know, for instance, um, that certain foods, certain behaviors, um, certain sexual behaviors, we know that there are differences between men and women. We know that children are going to fare when they, fare better when they have two parents and when they are born to their biological parents and raised by their biological parents as a unit. Um, we know that people who spend less on t- time online are healthier. We know that porn is uh, bad for people's sexual experiences. Like we, we do know these things and we know what makes human thrive. And so, you know, I'm, I'm obviously a Christian, we needn't have a theocracy um, to, I think, as a culture, have a sort of healthier um, understanding of what we need to do to exist as a community. And the last thing I'll say on that is, you know, when we're having these conversations about the divisiveness of our political discourse. Again, like put that through the context of hyper novelty where, uh, you know, people are extremely unhealthy and, and unhappy and they have incredibly new and revolutionary technologies at their fingertips where they're communicating with people from around the world, sometimes anonymously at the push of a button about news that is coming to them immediately in video 
audio, all of these different forms were connected with every corner of the globe, um, people, events, everything at the touch of a button. Wi-Fi is now like oxygen. Um, and, and again, at risk of sounding like a crazy person, um, these are all really important changes that are brand new. And to the lack of discussion of, of hyper novelty, I think in the political discourse, it does just, it, it boggles my mind sort of that we don't have a Ralph Nader or a Ron Paul, uh, you know, what Ron Paul was to the Fed. Um, why is there not someone like that to to social media and to some of these unhelpful tech uh, platforms? I have no idea. Um, but hopefully we see somebody so that the Overton window can be shifted and, and that lens can be a more common one. I mean, is, is the role then of politics or of regulation to reintroduce friction to some of these decisions, right? Maybe not to ban them, um, but to introduce a, a level of, and like, just to give a concrete example of what I'm talking about, you know, maybe, maybe states decide, um, or even on the national level, since this stuff jumps state lines, we decide to require uh, a name and a credit card number for pornography, mm. right? Maybe it's, it's only a dollar, but you have to put your name into the, the thing you have to put a charge on your credit card. Um, that's yeah. that's like a bit of friction, right? And and this could be done under the I don't want to say guys, but like the actual um, basis that it would be better for screening for age, mm-hmm. right? You're never going to completely be able to to lock everyone under age out of these websites, but it would help if you had to put in your name and a credit card. Um, those are, are things that are moderately difficult to acquire for um, for 11-year-olds, right? Um, which is not to say there aren't some some enterprising 11-year-olds who will work their way around it. But um, I, I say 11 because that's apparently the average first age of exposure to pornography. Oh, um, my gosh. 11. So, 11. Um, so, I mean, that, that, that would be what I would call an example, what I would call friction, right? Mm-hmm. That maybe we can't completely like these things are always going to be attractive to us but we can put some amount of friction at something in the social media but yeah like the infinite scroll feature might be something similar that would introduce like maybe um whether that it's corporate or or regulatory whether it's coming from the state or it's coming from social pressure i mean a lot of for your example ralph nader right a lot of what ralph nader actually accomplished wasn't so much in the regulatory arena, but the creation of all of these consumer protection, you know, <laughs> boards and and sort of um, uh, the Better Business Bureau and, and those kinds of things where people started to report bad bad actors in the corporate world. Um, you know, th- there there were both government and non government responses uh, to the concerns that Ralph Nader had, and I'm wondering if that's more because that seems like a, you know, something that would be a change in our politics, but doesn't, it doesn't sound crazy to me. Like that, that seems like an achievable direction that our politics could conceivably get from point A where we are to point B where there's, you know, consumer protection bureaus and there, there are, you know, um, moms groups against, uh, you know, various things. And maybe there's a little mm-hmm. more regular on the regulatory side and maybe you have to put your credit card in and maybe social media companies aren't allowed to do an endless scroll feature. You know, like I could see around the edges, um, 
that kind of friction being reintroduced through politics. Yeah. And I think anonymity, for instance, like online anonymity or conversations with people on other sides of the world have always been a net benefit to politics and culture. Although I, I'm open to arguments to the contrary, but I think, you know, they, they really have, but there has always been more friction there to use your word. You had to uh, take different steps in the past as, as opposed to now when it's just like, you're swiping your thumb a few times and, and maybe your thumb gets sore after a little bit, but that's you know the extent of the friction. <laughs> <That's the kind laughs> of friction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, I, I do think that's so important because a lot of people's criticisms of national conservatism, I think can be fair that there's a lot of talk of using the, the government in ways that are not uh, definitionally conservative um and and i think uh, some of that is is entirely fair now i'm i'm basically on board with most of the antitrust stuff and um you know a lot of the different policy things i'm i'm on board with but i do also think the the conversation about regulation etc cetera, etc cetera, is dominated by people who who do fundamentally reject, um, let's say, Reaganism when, you know, I, I don't. Um, and I think it's a different time, of course, and, and Reagan himself would apply Reaganism differently in, in 2022 and have a different set of priorities. But I do also think it's, it's just harder to talk about in politics because you're often talking about Congress and legislation and, and change. Like, it's just what's uh, at the forefront of the discussion, but there's so much room for, for local work on this, whether it's in the community, but actually just like on a local political level, one of the things I called for in the NatCon speech was uh, that local Republican elected officials should be installing free outdoor public gyms. Easiest thing in the world. You don't need to maintain them, um, but you can just put tracks outside. I mean, you, you obviously need to do some maintenance, but like put tracks outside, put, uh, you know, pull-up bars outside. New York has, where, where you are in as New York has some of these. Um, and, and you know what? That can also be accomplished by private benefactors, but that's such an easy way for local Republicans to route, um, you know, money in a way that taxpayers would want to see it go to and would benefit immensely from it seeing, from seeing it go to. So I, I am disturbed by how much of the conversation is sort of, um, dominated by federal policy solutions, because I do think so much of this is just, um, it's weird to talk about because we're in the middle of it. Like I, I just taped a uh, Federalist Radio Hour with Louise Perry, who I know we're both a fan of what the, the work that she's been doing. She'll be, she'll be on this next week. We, we already taped it, but it'll be. Oh, on excellent. So. Okay, great. So, and, and the book that she's just and has, has really done uh, great work with is called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And one of the questions I ha asked her um, was, you know, I think 10 years ago, that wouldn't have seen the light of day um, in the sort of the, the media circuits that she's been invited onto with this book, thankfully. Um, and, you know, that's for some different reasons, but like, it, it, that's a huge part of it. It's just increasing awareness. Um, Gen Z, we've talked about that BuzzFeed article how many times about how they're rejecting sex positivity. Um, some of this is actually already happening on a cultural level. Um, it just needs to be sort of channeled and, I mean, that's that's good news, uh, but it, it doesn't all have to come from the government, certainly. Yeah, I it's as you were think, I, talking, I, I'm wondering if I even consider myself a, a conservative anymore. I, I don't <laughs> um, I don't have the same relationship with the, the label as I used to um, for a variety of reasons, one of which is what we were just talking about, the not even the, the government regulation piece, but the um, 
the, the like idea that we can flip a switch and, and return, um, I think is, is quite just, it seems totally unrealistic to me. Um, and so it just like, seems like a lot of conservatism is not, not aimed at exactly punching through to the other side of modernity and kind of aimed at, at trying to chisel our way back. Um, and look, I, I actually agree with that we would be better off, but I just, that seems like an impossible project to me in many ways. Um, but, but the other part of it is this, right? It, it just seems a lot of the concerns, cause I, I also haven't rejected Reagan. I also don't think Reagan is the caricature that no. um, later, later Republicans have almost made him into. Um, I think, you know, Reagan was a good politician for a reason. Um, and, and he wasn't actually ideologically dogmatic in the same way that a lot of his, um, I would say, the people who invoke him today are. Um, but yeah, it does seem to me that we need a different set of solutions than in the 1980s. And I'm, I'm much less, it's not that I, I've, I've jettisoned a lot of the concerns about overextending government. Um, and I still think that government is, is a bad solution in many cases, but it's also, um, I increasingly see that we're going to have to retreat into the public sphere, right? That in some cases, the government is the only, um, the only actor that can challenge some of these forces because exactly because like this, this idea that we're all individually making decisions in, in a vacuum is, was never true um, and is, is even less true, I feel like, in a globalized, you know, hyper novel world that you, you were describing in your, your piece that um, it's the same thing that bothers me about even how we talk about student loans as we talked about before. Um, it, we Sometimes I feel like the right just talks about it as though the world has not changed from 1983. And just, it, I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess I am conservative still, but I have much <laughs> less of a, like, I would have once fought for the label. Does that make sense? Like, if somebody were like, oh, that's a, not a conservative solution yeah. to this. Um, or I would have been like, no, yes, it is. Um, and here's why. Here's why it's consistent with conservative principles rightly understood. And now I'm almost in kind of a crisis mode where I don't, I just don't care. Yeah. Okay, so tell me why the solution isn't going to work and maybe I'll listen to you, but um, it, it just like, it seems like a, a very quaint concern, to be honest with you, like a very quaint concern as to whether or not, you know, this, this solution, just tell me whether you think what you think the pitfalls are or why it's the cure will be worse than the disease. Because it seems to me that we're, we're in, we're in the, uh, <laughs> we're in the right to try <laughs> to invoke yeah. a, a favorite. We're in, we're in the right to try era of public policy where we're going off a cliff culturally, individually, uh, spiritually, almost, um, and we need to try something different. So if you're going to tell me that that thing doesn't work for X, Y, Z reasons, I might be willing to listen to. But if you're just going to tell me that that thing is not in keeping with some abstract principle, even if I, I might have once agreed with you, I just I found myself like thinking, I don't care. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you're going to go off a cliff for the sake of this. <laughs> right. Um, because a lot of the sort of guardians of uh, conservatism in a literal definitional sense uh are are people whose i think priorities are haven't been updated since since 1983 and you know what was what was happening then i think was was working better than it it's working now but it, it's also sort of important and i think 
national conservatives are fairly good at this. Um, to it's important to grapple with uh, how the system of the the sort of American free market system of then the Western free market system even um, led to the the cultural progressive takeover of now. Um, and I don't think that was necessary. I don't think that was the, necessarily the, the inevitable outcome. Um, but I do think, you know, people in the Republican Party uh, weren't paying attention um, and were mocking people who were. And I just, yeah, but, but I also think conservatism as a, a name is worth defending precisely because the conservative movement in the Republican Party, it in theory in influences, um, is really the vanguard of, uh, it, it's the bulwark against big government tyranny and, and big government oppression. Um, it's, it hasn't for a long time been a sufficient bulwark against the oppression of big business. Um, but I think, you know, without a conservative movement properly aligned and, and maintained, um, it's, it's going to be even easier for the corporate left to, and the neoliberal sort of political establishment to, to bulldoze people's rights and freedoms. Um, and I really see, I mean, in the absence of a freaking ACLU that is willing to defend civil liberties, uh, the only place where you're, you're getting that from, um, is the is the conservative movement even if you know people like oh probably pro- probably Dr. Azarad over at Hillsdale um believe that we have a, a too broad an interpretation of what civil liberties uh are and maybe we understand them post enlightenment in ways that are are overly broad um there are still things like you know the 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 let's see the first amendment uh the the right to you know free exercise, all of that good stuff um, that I think conservatives are uh, should defend and are best positioned to defend. And, and I, I do think conservatism in the sense of a definition is worth defending for that reason. Yeah, certainly. Um, I think the, the debate uh, between sort of in the, uh, the founding between whether or not like we should pass a bill of rights, right. And within the, the constitution, it's funny. Cause like mm-hmm. there are still people defending, I think it was Madison's point, right. That the constitution is stronger without it because, you know, you don't want these islands of sort of carved out Liberty because it implies that the rest of um, the rest of the space is free game for the government to encroach. I feel like that debate is settled now, though, because if we didn't have these islands of liberty, we wouldn't even have. It's not like, I, I don't know. I can't imagine an alternate timeline without the First Amendment, without the Fourth Amendment, without some of these these bulwarks um, that are, are very concrete, these islands of, of liberty that actually are much more difficult to transgress, at least in a certain way in America. I mean, that's why <laughs> in in even in the UK, which we consider a free country, and and our cousins and so on, you can still you can get arrested for you know using the wrong pronouns or whatever because they're they they can have hate speech laws in a way that the US cannot. I mean, without serious transformation um, of the Supreme Court and of our our documents, the US has a bulwark against that because it's written out. So I think that debate. Um, I think we'd be a lot worse off without the Bill of Rights. Um, Johnny Depp can't even win a defamation suit there. <laughs> what kind of society are they? Um, yeah, and Ar- Arthur Millick has done some work actually saying we need to open up defamation again. Maybe he's maybe he's right. Maybe we've gone too far. You know, um, there there are obviously limits to these things, but um, 
I'm overall, I'm very glad that we have the First Amendment, even if it's not sufficient to protect a genuine culture of free speech, as we're seeing now, it is nevertheless one important bulwark. Um, so now that we've we've attacked sort of the, the Reagan uh, Reagan zombie side of the right, um, let's attack the other side of the right for a while. Uh, so the other half of, of NatCon, um, especially among the attendees, is, is the so-called dissident right, right? Plenty of... Uh, hung out with plenty of Twitter mutuals and, and those kinds of uh, events, which was really nice, by the way, really nice to meet people in person. Definitely a reminder that there's no substitute as we were saying that the facsimile of, of online discourse is not actually um, is not the same as meeting people face to face and having a real conversation as two human beings uh, looking into the whites of each other's eyes. Uh, oh. <laughs> no, it's uh, it, I think it's I think it, it's really important in that way. But um, I wanted to ask you what you think about the fact that there there's a part of the right, um, especially as I'm recording this now. I I live in to my eternal shame and accidentally I live in Dime Square um, in New York, so <laughs> kind of the center of this for people who don't know. There's a sort of downtown Manhattan. Um, vaguely conservative, or I, I wouldn't even say conservative, right right wing scene, intellectual scene, or art scene, um, and I, I'm wondering why so many of these folks who are, are smart, um, interesting people seem to be going in a direction that is sort of giving up on democracy, and I don't mean that in a pearl clutching way of like you know we're all going to be fascists and we're going off the rails. Um, I I mean, it almost in in a very pragmatic sense where uh, it seems like a very weird time to me to be giving up on democracy, (laughs) given the fact that the last 30 years in so many ways have been a story of the failure of not democracy, right? Whether that's, um, whether that's sort of an elitist, uh, institutions that create so much of our culture, or whether that's the administrative state that is doing so much of the actual work of governance um, these days, or whether that's something like that's appropriately anti-democratic, like our courts, right? If you look at a list of problems, uh, political problems that I think people on the right would agree are are bad things that have happened in the last 20 to 30 years, maybe one in 10 comes from democracy um, or, or comes <laughs> genuinely from the bottom up. Right. So it's not that I dismiss some of the concerns about, you know, you, you can't really have a, a um, constitutional republic without a virtuous people. Maybe we have lost a lot of that virtue. Maybe, as you say, we're numbing ourselves in, in uh, a hamster wheel loop of facsimile of, of real life. And, and it is indeed hard for me to under to imagine people on the metaverse actually being a self-governing being like, <laughs> part of the self-governing republic. So like I take all of those points, but in a very pragmatic and concrete way, it seems like so few of our problems um, in the last 30 years have actually bubbled up from the people. And in fact, it seems to me the people have had a more reasonable tack on just about anything that you can name than the administrative state, than our courts, than, um, you know, then then their their elites um, and their elite institutions. So why at this moment are we seeing so many critiques of democracy on the right, whether that's Catholic integralism or um, whether it's it's like Curtis Yarvin and, and saying basically um, arguing that true change can only come by replacing one set of elites with another? Like, why is everyone giving short shrift to democracy right now? 
It just yeah. seems very backwards to me. Well, I think it's part of what we were talking about earlier in this like mass challenging of some assumptions um, of the past, you know, 100 years that democracy is a is because it was so hard won in the West that it is the greatest system ever. And when people are in in pain, I think it makes sense that they're going to question that assumption. And so I see that as sort of the same kind of process of like, if democracy is a product of the entitlement, um, you know, is is it coming, is it springing from a poisoned well to begin with? And and a lot of that critique, integralism, et cetera, et cetera, does go straight back to the enlightenment. Um, and I, I get that. I mean, you, you can critique the enlightenment though, without rejecting it whole cloth. Um, and I, I think that's where some of these critiques go wrong. Um, but they would say democracy itself has been, um, you know, the democracy, free market democracy has, uh, you know, made people consumerist uh, goblins who have elevated these bad politicians and these bad corporate leaders to power because they wanted cheap Chinese goods um, to to sort of numb themselves. And because we uh, live in this objectivist world where, uh, you know, we just are, are we're, we're consumers, right? We're just, we have, we have allowed ourselves, we have voted and, and spent our ways willingly uh, we have voted and spent ourselves willingly into um, this, and and thus democracy was the vehicle for the corruption and erosion of a, a healthier culture. But uh, I don't really buy into that, and I also think it's important to realize how much um, some of the same people are very concerned about the deep state and the powers, um, especially in a high tech world of uh, you know an oligarchy. Um, that has that that has the power basically that that has monopolized industries and products to our detriment um to to exert this incredible control over your daily life and your culture uh so i i don't know how to square that circle at all i don't think replacing in a culture that's so broken i don't think you can replace our our bad oligarchs with good oligarchs um benign oligarchs or uh, just not even benign but better and and benign in the sense that they're they're better than the bad alternative uh, the lesser of two evils um i do understand why people are challenging that assumption though that democracy is itself the lesser of of two evils because it's a you know it's a, it's a sorry state of affairs but when we're embarking on that project um i actually think if anything we'll find uh, a lot of uh, a lot of good as we sort of sift through the wreckage but uh, i think the key is to not deny the wreckage um but to to weigh it appropriately you know, I think the American people are remarkably unreconstructed, given the unanimity, I can't say that word, um, <laughs> of, of their elites in really, you know, wholesale pushing both a politics and a lifestyle that is destructive in so many ways, whether that's hating, you know, like really literally teaching American children to hate each other based on the color of their skin or that they are inexorably locked in conflict with one another um, in a zero sum game um, or whether that's uh, and, and we've talked about this many times. I mean, I, I think there are limits. I think there are generational limits to essentially American middle class resilience against some of these things. Um, and I think we are probably seeing 
the beginning of the end um, generationally in terms of, of people who have that sort of constitutional rejection of certain really bad ideas. Um, but that being said, I think it's been pretty remarkable. It's been a pretty remarkable run from the, the like average American in rejecting a lot of these ideas. Um, and the fact that Donald Trump was elected in 2016 is itself really mar- remarkable. If you look at it from that lens, you know, the fact that virtually every single newspaper, including, for example, National Review, right, you know, mm-hmm. weighed in against Trump, including me. I, I didn't like Trump in 2015 and 2016. Um, and it turned out that there was actually something salutary, even if you don't like Trump um, or don't think that he was a good president, it, it, there is something remarkable about the fact that Americans actually flipped the bird to every major institution that was screaming, this guy is terrible. And they were like, no, we don't think so. You know? And yeah, actually a, a a white pill of sorts. Like Americans are resistant in a very real way to, to a lot of these um, sort of woke ideas from the left. Now their resistance on some of the things we've been talking about in this episode is probably lower a lifestyle of, you know, sold by the sexual revolution that's been lower and it's been correspondingly destructive and immiserating, but it, it, (laughs) I don't know. It just seems like um, if you take a step back, it's actually pretty remarkable how little Americans have budged on even on some of these ideas, even though they've been sold from literally every corner. Yeah. And I think the, maybe the integralist response would be it's because we are we have replaced um fulfillment uh from god with fulfillment from from goods and material reality um and uh, you know there's the I, I think that's absolutely true we we have replaced our source of fulfillment um and we are finding it in different places and we we're, we're uncomfortable with rejecting that because for some people it's really been the order of their life um the moral order of their life and their culture so I I do think that's a a really interesting, um, I I think that's a really interesting point. I don't, I mean, again, like the concentration of power, whether it's in big, big business or big government is not healthy and not good. Um, And it's, it's an interesting question. For instance, like most Republican voters voted against Donald Trump in the primary in 2016, the Republican primary in 2016. And so that would be an argument that, uh, American democracy is not functioning. Um, but, you know, in, in typical primaries, the order is not, you know, we're voting against one person and, and channeling it, just channeling into other candidates. It's that, you know, this one candidate is unique, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and the juxtaposition of, of Trump with Clinton and, and Trump and Biden, I mean, those are just fascinating um, and, and testaments, I think, to the power of uh, the, the power of our freedom. Um, but at the same time, and as something you talk about so much is that we can change the presidents now, but they basically can just tinker around the edges of the administrative state. Um, so, so even as we exercise that power, uh, the, our, our so-called democracy, our, our constitutional Republic has been extra constitutional since the, you know, early days of the, the 20th century, um, with the growth of the administrative state and, and certainly since the second half of the 20th century. Um, and, and so to some extent, you know, the president is very, very powerful and that cannot be diminished because they can direct the administrative state to, to behave in certain ways. You know, Betsy DeVos rolled back what 
John King had done in the, the later years of the Obama administration. Um, so it's extremely important, but the administrative state is just a democratic enclave at this point or a neoliberal, uh, an enclave of, of, of neoliberalism that is, is, I don't know how you possibly can fix it, um, short of, quote, radical, uh, radical change. Right. No, I, I, I agree with all of that for sure. But it seems to me that the radical change that makes most sense is to restore some form of democratic accountability to a lot of these things, a lot of these institutions. And, and some of them, that will be a very radical change. As you say, it'll, it means rolling back the, the, the fundamental structure of the American government since the turn of the century, um, since the early 20th century. So it, it's certainly radical. And, and I, I am a radical <laughs> Um, but it seems funny to me that the, the radical change contemplated by some on the right almost goes in the opposite direction. Um, when it seems to me that if I'm placing bets, um, if I think, let's say a list of issues are important or not even issues, not like policy issues even, but a list of, of societal ills that we're talking about. Um, if, if I care about a series of societal ills and I want, those things to change because I think they're really, really bad for the country. It seems to me that if I'm putting chips on sort of the demos or the elite, um, there's no question. And so it, it's just been curious to me that so many of the radical changes proposed um, by parts of the right that I often find most incisive in diagnosing the problem, right? I mean, Yarvin, for example, the whole concept of the cathedral, I mean, he was out ahead of a lot of people in talking about what you now call the oligarchy, our oligarchy, right? Um, and, and recognizing that power can be wielded through institutions that are outside of government. The right was very slow to recognize that mm-hmm. um, in part because it did completely break apart, not just the policy solutions, but the very intellectual structure of the post-Cold War right. Um, so, mm-hmm. but, but it just seems like odd to me that after diagnosing the problem so effectively, they wouldn't, wouldn't go in the direction of saying, well, we have essentially two forces here. We have the demos, we have the people who are, yes, divided, yes, scrolling on endless loop, yes, you know, addicted to various things um, and despairing, but nevertheless a bulwark against some of the, the kookiest ideas of the elite. And it seems like a very strange moment to abandon democracy to me because it seems like actually democracy has our democratic accountability more generally has a ton to offer mm-hmm. in terms of, and almost all the things, the big changes that I would want to make if I was sort of snap my fingers and be in charge of, of the American right would be, no, let's get serious about actually empowering Americans because I think imperfect as they are, they will make better decisions than their elite right now. Maybe yeah. that's not always the case. You know, I don't, we had a great elite in 1776, right? <laughs> and many times since then, but it seems like the, the ill of our era is not enough democracy, not too much of it. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's, that's absolutely true. Um, and I think, you know, this question of sort of denigrating things and the, or derogatorily referring to something as the lesser of two evils is funny to me because, again, like as a Christian, I believe man is inherently sinful and inherently fallen. And I don't think you need to be a Christian to realize that man has, you know, is, is, 
it's not true that man is just fundamentally good. And we like to speak about it in these, uh, you know, cozy, uh, gauzy ways, but it's just, it's really not true. So no system of government is going to be perfect, though we are so used to perfection. Um, and we are so used to, you know, on demand perfection and service and, and greatness, um, in our modern society that, you know, we're, we, I think, lose perspective on the fact that what we have is remarkable. I was watching the Ken Burns, uh, Holocaust documentary this this weekend and as is uh ken burns recent impulse i think it dabbles in some really unfortunate anti-americanism but i i also i mean it's very powerful in some ways and uh very i think uh progressive in some unfortunate ways um or or overly politicized in some unfortunate ways um mispoliticized misdirected politics whatever you want to call it um no, no, but, no one has beclowned themselves more in the current moment by the way than historians as a professional class yes <laughs> Beschloss, Meacham, Ken Burns, like you can go on down the list. I guess list. Ken Burns is more of a documentarian than a historian, but, right. you know. He's a, in the, a, yeah. a populist, a popular historian. Right. And, yeah, yeah, right. And um, one of the things that struck me as I was watching it was, um, you know, how we take for granted um, the amazing sort of, parts of our or the amazing uh, aspects of of our existence that contrast with you know the lives that every other person have lived, even the poorest people in America. Um, and I say that, you know, with awareness to somebody is to, to borrow a term from the left, extremely privileged. Um, but it's just factual um, that, you know, people are living higher quality lives um, than they really ever have. They're more peaceful. There are very not peaceful places. I, I live near one, so I know that uh, in mm -hmm. the United States of America, but life on average is much more comfortable um, across class than it has been compared with what it was before. Um, and, and America, as for all of America's flaws, and we can talk about America's flaws when it came to uh, not intervening in the Second World War and, and in the Holocaust um, in, in different ways, um, but for all America's flaws, the story is very clearly that the glass is half full and the glass is not half empty. That doesn't mean there aren't flaws. Um, but you know the, the, the lives that we live right now do need corrections. Um, and our, but our system has still produced the greatest outcome that humanity ever has. It is still the, the great, the outcome as our system of, of government is still the greatest that it ever has been. Um, and that any system has ever produced. And so, uh, we have the tools. We have the tools to issue these corrections. Um, and we can use them. And maybe Inez, our pessimism is too is, is counterproductive. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I have a hard time not being pessimistic, but I, I don't know. I'm I'm pessimistic in the sense that I think it's difficult to enact the kind of change that is necessary. I'm much less pessimistic about the American people themselves, which I guess is why I'm. I, I'm I'm more of a small D Democrat than I ever have been, um, but I, I just before we wrap here, I wanted to um, throw out something that just is like a quintessentially Emily and Inez kind of uh, topic <laughs> here. Um, there there was this article in uh, Psychology Today, I think. Let me, yeah, it's in Psychology Today. Um, 
uh, based on a survey of uh, like a census style survey, 2000 American women, 18 to 40, um, and then 1000 American men, 18 to 40, to extend it, like understand sort of um, dynamics about dating. And uh, there, there are two bullet points that I thought were really interesting um, in this survey. So one is that 82% of women reported experiencing creepy behavior, sometimes, often, or constantly. And the second data point was that men avoid women out of fear of being creepy. So 44% of men said the fear of being creepy, quote, reduces their likelihood of interacting with women generally. And that jumps to 53% among men who are reporting that they're single. So more than half of single men are afraid to interact with women for fear of coming off as a creep. Um, and I just thought like in the age of sort of dating apps and everything, that was like a really interesting statistic. It's almost like a, we, we talked, I think a while back about the, the me too, there's surveys that show that men are disengaging at work from like mentoring women, for example, post me too. And it almost seems like, at least part of the story here seems to be that women have vastly expanded what they think is creepy and men have uh, internalized that and are just like, instead of all becoming, you know, James Bond or what they've done, <laughs> which is impossible. Um, they, they've, they've just disengaged from talking yeah, to women. Yeah. I mean, that's like, I mean, it's funny, but it's also kind of chilling because it's like, I mean, are we going to work our way through this because of the human need to procreate and couple off? Or is this another way that because of the uh, because of access to pornography, um, because women, uh, for some good reasons, are able to support themselves now without a man um, and can even get sperm donors, for instance, and, and have their own children, um, that over time, you know, this this isn't something we overcome because we have the tools to numb ourselves. Or is it something that does get worked out because of the human sort of like evolutionary biological need to procreate? Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I really don't know, but it also is similar to the last conversation we were having, Inez, which is that we have these expectations in the postmodern world that people are good. Um, and we have this weird faith in humanity that is not, I think, borne out at all by history um, or, or by our contemporary world. Um, but it, it's the same thing. Like, what do you expect from Men. Men are men and they will always be men. And in a healthy culture, they are responsive to incentives and standards um, that are healthy and uh, virtuous and moral. Uh, in an unhealthy culture, they are not. And uh, we are in an, un an unhealthy culture that also expects men to not be men and expects people not to act like you know, they're they're programmed to like women can have casual sex and just be fine that's not how women operate it's not how men operate um and, and we just are so far from having a world with with healthier standards and incentives um that i this this is one data point of probably many, many data points that shows how just dramatically out of whack um, sexual politics are in the United States right now. And you see it showing up at our birth rates. You see it showing up in uh, levels of happiness. You, sh you see it showing up in deaths of despair. You see it showing up in levels of addiction. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it's, this is, if men are too afraid to ask women out, um, yeah, they're more likely to engage in self-destructive behaviors and they're going to push, not them, but the whole system is going to push women to engage in self-destructive behaviors as well. Yeah, there's there's also the app angle to this because 
um, and I think we've talked about this before, but it, it makes things that were previously not creepy, creepy, right? Like it just used <laughs> to be sort of normal. I mean, way back in the, the hinter years of 2009, right? It, it was just normal for men, if, even men who didn't know the women, right? To come up to groups of girls and shoot their shot. You know, it was just um, part of, of natural human relations. And so there wasn't that alarm bell that immediately went off in your head as, as a, a girl, right? Um, you said how you and Jarrett met? Men. <laughs> well, he came up to me at, at a really embarrassing political event. So maybe. Was um, it 2009? uh 2011 okay got it um but but yeah so like it was just normal it was part of normal human interaction and so like there was more i think psychological room for women to at least give a guy a a shot to prove himself not a creep right or not a loser (laughs) um whereas now immediately that human interaction because it's so much rarer and it doesn't happen very often i feel like it immediately sets off alarm bells in women's heads that like are not justified, right? Um, it's and- really interesting. I was just gonna say the pastor where uh, we go to church. Um, his name is Ben Stewart. He's fantastic. Um, and uh, the church is called Passion City. He was giving uh, a sermon a couple of weeks ago on exactly this point, and he sang the Akon song where it's like nobody wants to see us together, uh, but that don't matter. And he was like, "What? Of of course that matters." And when you strip away the community. Um, from people's sort of pairing off the system that we use to pair off, you just have these, um, you know, v- very isolated people coming together in a vacuum. Um, and, and if you strip the community away from it, that means, um, you, you don't have the benefit of the community's kind of instinct, protective instincts and social instincts. And you're relying on, you know, two atomized people to make a good uh, informed decision, but you haven't seen that person in uh, other huge chunks of their lives, uh, work life, social life, faith life, whatever it is. Um, and that can lead to some like, again, really, really bad outcomes. And uh, that whole sermon is on YouTube. It's, it's better when I'm not explaining it. Um, but I think that's a huge, huge, huge problem with the apps is they um, create objects and, you know, we're, we're not very good at just like matching random objects together um, because human beings are social and you can't, you know, it, it's not money ball. <laughs> yeah. It, it's also, um, and this is one of the things in the episode that will be next week with Louise Perry. I was wondering about with her, but um, I feel like it's almost restoring our pre um, pre-civilizational or pre-agrarian society sort of haremistic tendencies right? <laughs> Where, um, because there's such a thing as a guy who's situationally overcoming certain things like i feel like women's default towards 90 percent of men and if you look at like surveys and stuff on these apps it bears it out women's default towards 90 percent of men is this guy isn't isn't good enough you know, uh, mm-hmm. because women are the selecting sex. And by the way, I think like the sort of manosphere rage against that fact is also silly. Just like I think feminist rage against like, you know, fat not being beautiful, right, is, <laughs> is sort of silly. It's a war against nature. Um, but that selecting behavior goes a haywire on the apps because there's nothing counterbalancing women's tendency to do that. Right. So you end up with 10% of men who are just like really suave, really attractive, over six feet tall, whatever, um, who are essentially 
maintaining serial harems. Um, nobody, the women mostly aren't happy <laughs> in this arrangement either because they're not getting the commitment that they want from these guys, but they're dismissing the other 90% of men because maybe they're not seeing that guy like sharing a funny joke with his buddies, right? Um, which is like an attractive thing to women, or maybe they're not seeing how hard he works, you know, in his job, or they're not seeing all these other aspects of, of these men and they're doing a straight paper rendition um, and, and when women, when you ask women a question, a question, I feel like, you know, list all the qualities that are important, like they'll never stop listing them. Right. Um, and I think that's fine that women are that way, but they were counterbalanced in real life through real human interactions. And now when you take that away, it's like, it, it really is recreating almost a, a sort of, um, you know, like a tribal dynamic of like basically 10% of the wealthiest men and and most successful men and the chieftains having all the women and then they send off but in that context they send off all the young men to die in war and here they just right. like drop out and watch porn and like um whatever all the other things that that you were listing right um or, or that nick, nick everstad is writing about and there's this very unhealthy dynamic because you end up with a vast majority of people unhappy with the sexual market. Whereas if they were just hanging out in person, I feel like it would be a smaller percentage of people who didn't find somebody who made them happy. You know what I mean? I don't know. It just, it seems like an encouragement of all of our worst instincts is, is, has been put onto these, these apps. Um, and there's yeah. nothing to counterbalance it. Yeah. And people are making a ton of money off the misery that they're creating, like misery profiteers, essentially. Um, they're mining uh, and plumbing the depths of human sadness for, for profit. Um, and I think that's an important point, too. But you know, we're, we're programmed to actually like their smells, like react to smells in terms of mating and uh, coupling off. And you get none of that over an app. Um, like they're, they're just like very human things um, that, that make sense and that help us. That's not to say that human instincts um, are, are always going to guide us in a more helpful direction, but some of them actually really can. And to ignore them and just jump into the, the app scene, um, no, I mean, I just, I don't think it's, it's helpful at all. And it's also just like, I don't know. I mean, how, how are the apps like the least of our problems though? Anyway, I, <laughs> as when, when we have, um, they're just preying on an already broken culture. They're, they're just vultures, cultural vultures, basically. Oh, that rhymes. Uh, that's nice. <laughs> Culture vultures. Maybe I'll put that in the title. Um, yeah, I mean, that's all certainly true. And it's a good point that people are making money off, off, off this stuff, but, um, it, it is just like sad to me on a very human level. Like it's almost like the death of flirting, you know, it's, it's the mm -hmm. death of an actual joy in choosing a mate that is, disappeared um and now it's it's like a process we hand over to an algorithm we put in our our worst um like what our worst instincts tell us to, to put in and then <laughs> um the app spits out this life that is unfulfilling for a large percentage of people which is actually very much in keeping with our nature but not yeah. it's like isolated nature it's like the worst possible form of humor human interaction it's like it's like so many things. I feel like the world we live in encourages all our worst instincts constantly. And it's 
this much I agree with the integralists or um, particularly with, with Sarab Ahmari or some of the other folks, you know, you set up a world in which there is frictionless where, where doing the, the wrong thing is, is easy and frictionless and doing the right thing is really, really hard, even harder than it would be in, in a state of nature or in like a better civilization. That's the recipe on the population level for just disaster, right? Well, um, and, and that, to bring it full circle, is why I think our politics absolutely has to readjust um, in the same way that it readjusted to the nuclear threat. Um, like the, the nuclear nuclear technology has has taken place; it has dramatically upended the world order in ways that we've never seen. It's taken place within like people's lifetimes. Like literally, the Queen lived through the entire age like that's as old as nuclear technology is um actually older like a person on earth who just passed away is older uh than nuclear technology essentially there are people alive right now that are older than the most dramatic and revolutionary um and powerful and tragic technology that has ever existed on the face of the earth and so our politics readjusted um for for nuclear technology uh and it should also readjust to the technologies that have made human life um, unnecessarily difficult in, in the sense that the costs are not worth the convenience benefits, the, the, uh, the, the moral and let's say the, the moral, emotional, personal costs are not worth the benefit of the convenience. And uh, to your point about adding friction, like there are actual policy conversations to be had here. There are actual cultural conversations to be had here. There are things that our politicians should be directing business leaders to think about and that our business leaders should be directing politicians to think about. Um, but it's totally absent. I mean, totally, completely, entirely absent from our political conversation. Uh, despite the fact that there are plenty of of easy conversations to be had about policy and easy conversations to be had, not just about public policy, but corporate policy, um, you know, instead of having what Mindy Kaling suggests she would support, which is corporations paying for women to freeze their eggs. We're talking about that, but we're not talking about uh, the the, uh, you know, the the obvious problems with it. Yeah, as, uh, as, a, as a great 80s movie once said, life is suffering, princess. Anyone else who tells you otherwise is suffering, is uh, selling something. But we do all seem to be suffering more than we, we need to be. Um, and and I, I agree with you. I think there, there very well might be a political role um, in, in doing something about that. But uh, Emily, thank you once again for another uh, joining me for another episode of After Dark on High Noon. Um, thanks, thanks again. We'll see, you, we'll see you in another month for another Docket episode. I'll be here. It'll be Halloween. Yeah, that's right. Um, God, time is going so fast. Um, <laughs> so thank you. Thanks, Emily. And, and thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stefan is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. We also have two other podcasts. If you haven't checked those out yet, She Thinks with Beverly Hallberg, which is a daily download. Um, and uh, At the Bar, which is a, something I do with my colleague, Jennifer Braceres, where we talk about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. Um, as always, on all of those things, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. And please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Do not underestimate how much those those reviews help. They really help push the the um, pod in, in all those algorithmic things that Emily and I are condemning for the last hour. <laughs> um, <laughs> but nevertheless, be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon. <laughs>